Good morning. The reading, uh, the first reading is from the Gospel of John, and you can find it at chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all on his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run away from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and out and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The second reading is from the letter to the epistle, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, the example of Christ's suffering. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is to your credit if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Well, the... First verse of our reading this morning from 1 Peter, as we're going through our, our series looking at this little letter as we follow the lectionary through, uh, through the next few weeks. This first verse has some parallels in uh, some of Paul's letters. And I think it is surely in human history of the last couple of thousand years one of the most catastrophically misused verses in the New Testament. Because the entire theological construction 
that has allowed Christians to own slaves has been built on this passage and its parallels in other letters. From the transatlantic slave trade to apartheid to the legacy of racism that we still live with in the Western world, some of the most grievous sins of the so-called Christian world begin here. So what are we to make of such a troubling phrase as slaves? Accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. Part of our problem is that we, in Bloomsbury, in 2017, are reading this verse from a perspective of power. Dawn very rightly pointed out to us last week that we, as the beneficiaries of Western capitalism, are some of the most powerful people in the world. And yet, of course, the system on which we base our power is itself a system largely founded in the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and is maintained, of course, by the 21st century equivalences of slave ownership. We may not like it, we may not have asked for it, we may not even realize it, but for most of us, our position in life and society is predicated on a system of globalized domination and oppression and enslavement. From the factories that make our clothes, to the farmers who harvest our luxury groceries, to the finance systems that keep us solvent, we are at least by proxy slave owners. And if you're anything like me, you probably find that to be an intensely uncomfortable realization. And so when we read a verse like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, and when we read it in the light of the unspeakable evils of the slave industry that it has historically legitimated, it's no surprise that we find this verse too to be intensely problematic. However, and I say this recognizing that in no way does this let any of us off the hook, I wonder if we have been reading it upside down, so to speak. Because 1 Peter 2.18 was not written for slave owners, but for slaves. It was not written to either justify or challenge the powerful but to comfort the weak and the vulnerable. It was not, dare I say it, written for us, but for others. And if we are going to hear it, we will need to make some effort to shed ourselves of our inherent privilege and attempt to take a few steps in another, less powerful person's shoes. We simply need, for a moment at least, to get over our emancipatory impulses. We need to leave behind, for a moment, 
our modern discourse on human rights, in order that we can enter into a world where Christians had no power to change either their own social circumstances or the situations of others. Those in the churches of Asia Minor at the end of the first century who were the original recipients of this letter had no option to buy fairly traded products. They had no option to demand ethical investment from their bankers or pension fund providers. They had no freedom to make the case for freedom for others. They had no freedom to research and publish stories that might reframe the narrative of their society. They were not Christians like us. Those worshipping in the churches to which 1 Peter was written were either slaves or free men of the lower classes with possibly a small number of slave owners thrown in for good measure. And Paul does address the responsibilities of slave owners in his letters to Ephesians and Colossae. But 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 18, is clearly written to those in the churches who were slaves with no possibility of appeal, including those who were not necessarily the slaves of Christian masters, but those masters who were harsh, unjust, and violent towards them. And the advice to these slaves that we find so hard to hear with our modern ears is quite radical. The author of 1 Peter, whoever it was, offers them a radical perspective on their plight. He tells them that they are already free. This is a revolutionary answer. It is something that has the capacity to turn the world upside down. They are slaves, but they are free. His point is that in their willful subordination of themselves to their earthly masters, they become active participants in the socio-political revolution of Jesus, which began with Jesus' own willful subordination to the forces of violence and hatred that took him to his death on the cross. As we come to communion later in the service, we will be reenacting the death of Christ amongst us. And Jesus chose the cross. He willfully subordinated himself to powers that would treat him harshly unto death. And slaves, when they take that upon themselves, do so after the pattern of Christ. And so, says the author of 1 Peter, they are therefore in Christ, no longer enslaved, but are free. This is the upside-down thinking that I was talking about earlier, where powerlessness becomes agency and slavery becomes freedom. The lesson that 1 Peter is attempting to convey is that in Christ, a paradigm shift has taken place in which even the least 
powerful person receives the capacity to respond in a Christ-like manner to their circumstances. However horrific and disempowering those circumstances might be, even a slave, says 1 Peter, can model the example of Christ who endured suffering and death for doing right. Now, I admit it, from my point of view, as someone who has had choice and privilege from my birth to today, this all has the potential to sound rather like a small crumb of comfort designed to keep the workers in their place. And so it has become when this passage and those like it have been taken from the poor and the disadvantaged and pressed into the service of the oppressor. But for the person who is utterly powerless, this remains a revolutionary perspective. The slave who chooses faithfulness to Christ in the face of suffering becomes aligned with Christ's own faithfulness and so is joined with Christ in the great project of salvation which disempowers and unmasks all powers of domination and oppression. And this crucible of suffering and disempowerment smelts away all the layers of nuance and compromise with which the rest of us who do not face such heat of persecution manage to surround and cocoon our own discipleship. The slave who subordinates themselves to the evil powers whilst refusing themselves to do evil, the slave who refuses to meet evil with evil, speaks of a faithfulness to Christ that utterly rejects all forms of dominance, oppression, cruelty and violence. By refusing the path, of revolutionary emancipation, and by choosing not to seek to reverse the balance of power or to long for violent retribution against their oppressor, the slave in Christ demonstrates that any who would seek such power over others, whether they be masters of many slaves or the perpetrator of hidden domestic violence, they are simply unchristian because this passage leaves no place for violent or dominant Christianity in any form. Because to seek to take power over another is to seek to take power over Christ as the most vulnerable become Christ. And this is a hard message for those of us who have inherited considerable power to hear. The message of 1 Peter may be challenging to those who are powerless. It may be a comfort to those who are enslaved and imprisoned. But it is equally challenging to those of us who are powerful. Because the situation of the Christian slave is offered as a paradigm for the way all Christians are to seek to live in the world. We saw in our first sermon on 1 Peter a couple of weeks ago that central to the message of this book is the principle that Christians are called from the world by God 
sanctified and transformed by the Spirit, and then sent back into the world as resident aliens and exiles to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. But what does this obedience to Christ look like? Well, says 1 Peter in chapter 2, it starts to look like slavery. We are, each of us, from the most powerful to the least powerful, called to realize that we live in a world which is trying to dominate us, to subjugate us, to bend us to its will. It will use coercion if necessary, but it is equally happy to buy our allegiance, to pacify us with pleasure and bribe us with benefits. And the lesson we need to hear loud and clear from 1 Peter is that all existing social orders, even those regimes established on the constructs of emancipation and human rights, are always only systems of relative justice and injustice. And none of them, not even egalitarian liberal democracies such as our own, represent the arrival of the new creation that is coming in Christ. We're not there yet. And the lesson we need to learn from the advice to the slaves is that subordination to systems of evil is not, in Christ, a call to fit either resentfully or happily into a given system, whether hierarchical or egalitarian, and nor is it a struggle to find a higher place within it. Rather, the call on us as it was for slaves in the first century, is to live and act as free persons with respect to all existing systems. Do you see the point? The slaves lived under slavery, and the message to them was, you are free in Christ, even if you are not bodily free. By the same token, we are slaves to Christ, which means we are not to be enslaved by all the systems and forces that would seek to take us hostage because we are called to be free in Christ also and to live that freedom in the midst of systems that would seek to prevent us from doing so. And so as we approach a general election and our attention is turned to issues of party politics, and Graham, by the way, sends his love and best wishes to us all. He can't be here this morning because he's campaigning for the Liberal Democrats. Our attention is turned to the key issues for our society and our world. Can we hear the call of one Peter down the centuries to us? Can we hear echoes of this call that we find elsewhere in the New Testament, such as in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, challenging them and indeed us to discover what it is to be a slave of Christ in the midst of a hostile society that is always seeking to enslave us? I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if now you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave to Christ. 
You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain for God. The call for subordination becomes, after the example of Christ, a call for service. A call to love of the other. A call to self-giving. A call to suffering with the other. And this is a revolution unlike any other. It's not a revolution of bombs and guns or of knives and swords. As the oppressed rise up against the oppressor to reverse the status quo and assume power in place of powerlessness. But neither is this a quiet acquiescence and submission to the powers that be. Rather, it is a call to dogged determination. To live life by one rule and one rule alone, and that is by the rule of Christ. You are slaves of Christ. And whether or not you are enslaved to some other system, you are free from it because your only master is Christ Jesus. The world challenges us to a choice, acquiescence or revolution. We either just give up and give in, or we find a way to fight back. But both will break our spirits and consume our souls. And if we play either of those games, we are simply playing the rules that the world is asking us to live by. It is the path of obedience to Christ, the third way that sows the seeds of the kingdom of Christ in the world. These are the seeds that scatter through society and spring up suddenly bearing the fruit of the kingdom in their own time and place. One Peter knows full well that the world will treat such people harshly. He knows that slaves and free men alike will face opposition if they take seriously their commitments to nonviolent resistance, to the systems of violence that dominate the world. And so he points his readers to the example of Christ, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Verse 23. We who have become slaves of Christ can so join Christ in leaving the inaction of justice to God. Because we know that if we take justice into our own hands, we simply become the system that we're seeking to undermine and we, in our turn, become the agents of the oppression of others. In sharing in the subordination of Christ, we follow the pattern of the original messianic revolution as it came into being in the life of Jesus. He is our example and our teacher in how we should live as aliens and exiles in this world of domination. Verse 23 again. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. We are followers of the one who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul puts it in Philippians. 
It is by taking this Christ-like path that we break free from the shackles of society to live lives which bring the new creation into being in the midst of our current social order. When we live as slaves of Christ, the whole world is changed. Jesus, in his life and example, made a complete and fundamental break with the sins, lies, threats, abuses and violence of all the existing political, social and family systems of the world. And so any truly Christ-like response to the systems of domination that still seek to enslave the world must make that same break. Just as there is no place in 1 Peter for a Christian who would seek violent domination over another, neither is there any mandate for Christian guerrilla warfare, armed results, or indeed any attempt to right wrongs that in any way requires the humiliation, suffering, and death of others. This is why I do not think there is such a thing as a just war in Christian theology. I just don't think it holds together in the light of the example of Christ whom we are to follow. Rather, just as Jesus took upon himself the socially and politically authorized violence of the empire, so those who would follow him must also find the non-violent path to transformation. We have our peace candle lit as a symbol of our commitment to the path of peace. And so what does this mean for us? What are we to do when faced with monstrous injustice? How do we respond to the illegitimate or oppressive regime? What do I say to the cruel master? What do I say to the man who beats his wife? How can I make the world right? And the answer, of course, is that I can't. I can't make the world right. And if I take it upon myself to enact justice, and believe me, I want to, I simply become part of the problem. The path of Christ is to trust ourselves to the one who judges justly as 1 Peter says. And then in the light of that, to find freedom from our enslavement to the narratives of redemptive violence that underlie the scripts by which our society keeps acting. And if this affects the way you vote, good. When we come together, we learn to do this together. Because it is together that we become the new humanity that is in Christ Jesus. And our collective woundedness, our acknowledgement of our addiction to revenge, is healed by the wounds of the one who died for the sins of the world. We who were lost like sheep are drawn back to the shepherd who will lead us into life. So what does it mean then for us in our world to live as slaves of Christ? What does it mean for us to discover in our own lives that we are truly free from all the systems and powers that seek to dominate and dictate our daily living? To beat, coerce and cajole us into acquiescence to their whims and desires. Well, what might it mean for us to have the courage to do right whatever the cost, rather than do wrong.
Sounds very basic. But what if we actually had the courage to stand up for right? And if somebody enslaves us or tries to kill us for doing so, then so be it, because better to die right than die wrong. What are the truths of our society's enslavement that seem to us every bit as self-evident and immutable as the system of slavery that kept the Roman Empire functioning? We are constantly told that this is just the way the world is and there's nothing we can do about it. What if we know that that's not true and live as if it is not true? What if it's okay to challenge some of the dominant narratives of violence and revenge that underlie our home policy and foreign policy? And to do so in the name of Christ who came to bring peace. What would it look like for those of us enmeshed in such systems to discover that in Christ we are truly free? What would it look like for us to live lives of absolute non-violence, of unconditional acceptance of the other, of radical obedience to the path of Christ in all areas of our lives? It may seem that such a thing is beyond us, that we are too compromised, too trapped, too enslaved. It may seem to us that this Christ-like path is dangerous foolishness when taken to this kind of extreme. And so it is. Well, it's dangerous anyway. I'm not sure it's as foolish as it appears. It is the challenge that one Peter dangles before us, telling us that to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. God of world-changing love, we recall that you are our, we are your children and you have called us to share your love with everyone we meet. Help us to receive your life and walk in your strength and follow your ways in every moment of our lives. In trusting in your world-changing love, we bring our prayers for our world. We pray for those who are enslaved. For those literally held slaves, owned by another. For those who are exploited and used for the benefit of the powerful. We pray for women trafficked for their bodies, for men trafficked for their strength, for those who work in unspeakable conditions, for those who have sold themselves in order to raise money to pay off debts. We pray for those who are enslaved in systems that will not allow freedom. For those whose movement is limited by government decision because of their colour, their language, their ethnicity.
for those who are not allowed to speak out about their situation or if they do face great danger. We pray for those who are enslaved by addiction to drink or drugs or sex. So many good things that can turn bad and take charge of us, take hold of us. And we pray, pray for all those who, like us, are powerful. For those who can make choices, that we will have the courage and the integrity to make good choices that serve others. For those who have the resources to live with ease, that we will have the courage and integrity to live in ways that serve and benefit others. For those who have the energy and the safety to speak up and act out for right, and we pray that we will have the energy and the integrity and the courage to do that. We pray for those who feel trapped, who feel afraid to change a system because of what it will cost them, what it will cost us. And we ask that the life that is in Christ may also be in us for the coming of the kingdom and the blessing of the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.